Hello, channel pros. Welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. We're coming off a long President's Weekend here in the States. The weather was really fantastic in Georgia. I got out for two awesome training rides. I'm starting to get ready for this summer's 50th annual RAGBRAI ride across Iowa, riding 500 miles across the rolling hills from the Missouri River to the Mississippi. It's going to be awesome. And I've got a new goal this year, something a cycling buddy told me about. I'm training for the Murph Challenge, named after the Navy SEAL Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy, who sacrificed his life for his country. The Murph Challenge involves doing 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, and 300 squats on Memorial Day. I built a training plan to get ready, and now I've got all of you as my accountability partners to make sure I don't give up. It's going to be tough. I'm Rob Spee, the host of Channel Journeys, Cycling, Sailing, and Channel Fanatic. On Channel Journeys, I get to talk with channel experts who share real-life stories of what works and what doesn't. We're all facing the same challenges in building successful partnerships and partner ecosystems. One of the things we need to be successful is a simple and effective partner program. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have multiple partner programs that developed over time, perhaps for different partner types or different product lines or maybe through acquisitions? I know I have. Well, how can you simplify and consolidate all of those programs into one simple global program? That's the key. My guest today is Ollie Fleischut. He's the VP of Marketing at Honeywell Building Technologies, and he's done exactly that. You're going to hear how Honeywell consolidated a huge number of partner programs into one global program. That is no easy task. Are you ready to learn how to simplify your partner program? Let's go. Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hey, Ollie, good afternoon. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Rob, for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks for joining me. And uh, want to hear a lot about what you guys are doing at Honeywell. So why don't we just get started with Honeywell is a very big organization. You work in a particular business unit, or uh, I think you call it a business unit, HBT. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's structured, what you guys are doing, kind of the scope of your role there? Yeah, yeah, happy to. And uh, maybe I'll start with a, a quick overview of Honeywell in general, a big corporation. We touch almost any and every aspect of life. Uh, a lot of times people are not even aware that we do. Maybe to use a couple examples, you know, Rob, the last time you were on a plane or while people are on planes, a lot of times those planes fly because of Honeywell technology, right? It might be the communications piece. It might be the radar system, it might be the cabin air quality. And again, you know, people will never know Honeywell is involved in that, but we are a big part of ensuring that they get from A to B in the most safest way, in the most sustainable way. The last time you ordered something online from the time you click order and then that package showing up uh, at your front door, Honeywell probably had a hand in that distribution center, technology behind that, warehouses, etc. And again, Honeywell making sure those packages arrive at your doorsteps in the most safe and sustainable way. There are tons of other examples. And uh, I have the pleasure of leading marketing for Honeywell Building Technologies, global organization. And again, we touch almost any and every aspect of life, right? When you think about any kind of global, either city, 
you can't walk around for more than five minutes without being touched by our technology. We touch any aspect that determines how happy, um, how safe, how secure, or how productive or healthier people are in any confined space, the air that you breathe. Uh, in case of emergency, you know, uh, the way when we think about energy consumption in buildings, and by buildings, I mean it in the broadest possible term, you know, from your hospital to your university, your stadium, your office building. And that's what we focus on. Most people will never know, and we're okay with that, but it gives us a great sense of purpose, knowing that we have the opportunity to positively contribute to billions of lives every day. Yeah, that's a very big mission that you guys are on. And you're a, a different type of company than most of the vendors or manufacturers that we have on Channel Journeys. What percentage of your business is software versus hardware? It depends on how we look at software and hardware, reoccurring revenue, etc. And the statement I can make is when it comes between hardware and software, um, they go hand in hand at Honeywell, right? Um, in order to provide either the best customer experience, the best partner experience, or the best outcome like occupant experience or energy savings, it only works when we bring our hardware and software offerings together where one plus one equals three. And that's something with our brothers and sisters in the, in the software business, Honeywell Connected Enterprise, we work hand in hand because the outcome can only be at the highest level of efficiency if we work closely together. So almost all of your products have a hardware component and then that software component as well. Yeah, it depends on the market. It depends on the offering. But for the largest part, they usually go hand in hand. Maybe there's a phased approach, et cetera, but uh, there's always an aspect of hardware and software when we think about the holistic building technology space. Yeah. And your role, you you said you're, you run marketing what all does that entail? Is it more than just owning the partnerships and the partner organization? Yeah. So for marketing, it includes any aspect around reputation work, demand generation work, sales and channel enablement work. So reputation would be aspects such as share of voice. You know, when we think about what are the key messages that we want to be known for in the market, what is our pull through when it comes to press releases, speaking engagements. How does that compare to our competitors? And do we have enough pull through of those key messages? And do we get our unfair share in the market when it comes to share of voice? Um, demand generation is a lot of what we activate through the marketing mix. It's a mix between online and offline. The vast majority of our marketing mix is digital. Um, but that is where we talk a lot about how many inquiries did we generate either on webinars, events, remarketing? It might be paid search. How many marketing qualified leads, sales accepted leads? What is the marketing general pipeline and orders? How much of that goes to the channel versus our direct business? And then sales and channel enablement is a lot of what the channel partner program does. Do we arm our channel partners, our um, some channel partners, distributors, others are acting more like a system integrator? Do we arm them with the right amount of information in order to serve their end customers? And same is true for our direct sales organization. I'm curious, Ollie, what's the history of partnerships for Honeywell or HBT, your business in particular? Have partners always been part of the equation? Yes, yes. And the way the partner network um, at Honeywell Building Technologies is around 30,000 um, strong and They've always been part of the family, right? Um, because the way we look at it from a Honeywell perspective is, yes, we are a global company with global experience, but with local representation, right? For us as Honeywell to deliver on the outcomes and the efficiencies that we promise our end customers, 
we wouldn't be able to do that without our partner network. And it's a global network in almost any country in the, in the world so that we ensure that we have the right support and the right activation of the outcomes we deliver. It's about 60% of the business heavily relies on our channel partner network. Okay, interesting. And has that increased over time or has that been a pretty steady state, that 60%? It's been pretty steady over the last couple of years. Now, when we think about how we go to market um, uh, within certain businesses, it's been stable. Now, the one thing that we have looked at over the last two years, I would say, is how do we bring all those individual partner programs? We had about 241 individual partner programs. They had different structures. They had different KPIs. They had 241 programs, Ali? It's, I would say, yeah, if, if I use it in the loosest term, programs, what I mean is the way we treated certain partner groups, right? There was maybe an agreement over here, a different one over there. But looking at how do we standardize that? What are the KPIs that really define growth for the partners, success for the partners? What are the benefits they should get from Honeywell, right? It's a, what type of access to maybe new product innovations. So we kind of standardized around one framework. And then we looked at you know, what is platinum? What is gold? What is silver? What kind of benefits? What kind of responsibility? And this is kind of the journey that we're on right now to make sure that um, the partner program is as efficient as possible, not only for Honeywell, but the way we measure the success of a partner program is if the end customers are happy, if the partners are successful, so are we. So we do that through the lens of how will this help our partner network? to be more successful by enabling the end customer better. What was the driver that said, hey, look, we've got to consolidate 241 partner agreements or partner programs into something more uh, reasonable? What really drove that decision for you? One of the key drivers, maybe I can put it on the umbrella of digitalization, you know, buzzword that almost everybody is using right now. But the way we looked at it is, yes, there's an aspect of, of efficiency there. But 241 different programs, different dynamics uh, that we had in the, in the past, they require a lot of manual handoffs. And manual handoffs is always a, it screams inefficiency in certain areas, right? Um, because we're not willing to sacrifice quality when it comes to our partners, right? So we have to invest a lot of time to do manual checkoffs across the partner program. So by automating and standardizing some of the, um, some of the approaches, we are just able to provide faster and clearer insights to our partners. Where are you in your tier right now, right? Think about any kind of um, reward program, maybe with an airline, et cetera. Uh, what's your status right now? How much does it take to get to the next tier? What is your year-to-date uh, success that you had? And by us being able to standardize, uh, standardize and then automate those aspects, it just improves the success, not only the success, but also the experience for our partners. Think about delivery. In the past, I'm almost embarrassed to say, folks had to call in and say, hey, I ordered something or I want to place an order. The main avenue to place an order was via phone. If you want to check an order, it was via phone. In in, in, 20, in our time right now, you know, we expect this to be digital, right? I want to log into a website. I place an order. I want to know where it is. I would like to see, you know, what is the estimated shipment date? When can I expect this to be delivered? And, you know, like everybody else, we had our fair share of delivery experiences over the last year, you know, with the supply chain issues that the world has experienced. Now, um, this was one of the key drivers to, to look at the partner network. 93% of our partners, 
they place multiple orders uh, through our e-commerce approach. When we think about how many partners place more than 100 orders a year to date, right? That's over 20%. So making sure they have a place not only to place the order, but check the status and giving them information real time was one of the key drivers where we looked at standardizing one program. How do you go about doing that, Ollie? If you've got two, over 240 different programs or tiers, how do you decide what is the right program to standardize on? What kind of process did you guys go through to, to figure that out? Yeah. And we looked at the first aspect was how do our partners define their success, right? Is it growth? Is it year-over-year -year growth? Is it how much inventory does somebody hold? Is it point of sale data? You know, is it how fast do invoices get paid from their end customers? So we looked at what are some of the KPIs? What are some of the benefits that we want to make available to all of our partners? And then we said, how can we, based on past data and forward-looking um, estimates, what would the tiering look like? I mean, our businesses are very, very different. If I think about the fire business, highly regulated business, right, versus maybe some electrical products business. We wanted to make sure while we use the same framework, that the framework does allow for specific, let me call it flavors within that. So you may have the same KPIs, but the thresholds of that KPI. So a partner in one country may have a certain growth target versus somebody else in another country, because you know when you think about the size of the market, if you make it the same dollar amount across the globe, you would have a handful of partners in the exact same country, right? So we standardized it around 38 different flavors, and those flavors have been personalized to each partner environment and market dynamic, so it becomes most meaningful to them. Right. Did you do go through any type of uh, advisory boards or, or partner surveys as you were putting this together? Yeah, we did a couple of things. At, at Honeywell Building Technology, we have technology advisory boards, we have distributor advisory boards, we have customer advisory boards. So we leverage those. And on, I love those conversations because they're always, you bring together a small group, you lock yourself into a conference room. It's very open. It's very direct. It's very productive. But those are the type of conversations you want to have. And then some of the ideas we had in the beginning, the way we looked at the program, those advisory boards really helped us to make sure that we don't just look at something through a PowerPoint slide or something that was developed in a conference room and looked great on, on a whiteboard but really that helped us to bounce it off reality and see, is this something that truly adds value? And once that was in place, we then also worked with our partners in IT to make sure that our technology, our partner relationship portals can actually deliver on what we promise. So we always look at technology, people, and processes. The technology needs to be able to support the program. You need to have the processes in place, simple things like, how do you pay an invoice? Looks good on PowerPoint, but there's a lot of systems involved that need to touch that process. And then have you trained the people internally and externally on how the process actually works? And um, then the last thing we did is we started small. We started in a particular country with a small group of 20 people. We ran it for a while. We got the feedback and then we improved. And so we continued to build. So we spent a lot of time in Q3, Q4 last year with pilot groups. And that dramatically impacted how we rolled out the program. Lots of lessons learned on how do you communicate? How do you set expectations? And what feature set might be more important to a partner than what we had on a roadmap? And that is now what we continuously do. Every quarter, we bounce it off our um, advisory boards to see what we can do better. And there's always something. Ali, what were some of the biggest surprises or maybe uh, assumptions that you had that 
that uh, got turned on you as you were putting this together and piloting it? Was there, were there any, any big things that jumped out at you? Yes, and never underestimate the complexity of technology and systems and the importance on a data governance model, right? Certain things that you and I may take for granted, but simple things, if you think about a vertical, one system calls it oil and gas, the next one calls it ONG, and there goes your data connection, right? So the amount of detail and really rigor you have to apply to make sure your systems work perfectly together at every single stage, every change that you make, does that maybe impact something in your ERP system? If you make a change to your ERP, what does it do to your PRM? And there's a lot of acronyms, right? So we, we had a lot of meetings to make sure that technology is aligned. Another aspect I would say is the level of communication. While it may sometimes seem like, oh, this, you know, if you look at the communication plan holistically, are we over communicating? Because look at all the things we've, no such thing, right? Um, let's make sure that, that the amount of communication um, and finding the right balance, we could easily hide behind sending out an email and call it a day, but, you know, jump on a call, onboarding webinars, surveys, making sure that you have a fully integrated communication plan that may feel over-communicated, but feel comfortable with that. So those would be the two things that I would probably call out. Yeah, I can certainly speak to the technology side from my experience, and we're going through this right now at Beyond Trust. It's a big one. It's a, a really big challenge as you're implementing new programs, getting the systems to support that and, and the data integrity, the data management, that is a really big issue. I know what you're talking about. What type of goals have you set, you know, rolling out this new program? What are some of the highest level goals that you're driving and, and really measuring yourself on? Yeah, and I think most of the goals, if not all of the goals, they tie back to two dimensions, which shouldn't be, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody in our space, right? They tie around growth targets and profitable growth targets, right? Because they need to go hand in hand. And it might be a year over year growth. It might be certain um, regional expansion targets. It might be targets around how much inventory to hold, et cetera. So, yeah, but they all tie back if, and we only kept it to like three to five targets, depending if you want a distributor side, if you want a system integrator side, um, targets to keep it very, very simple and then focus how we can live on those. But I would say between growth and profit or profitable growth, that would be the dimensions that we set our targets around. Yeah. Okay. How about you mentioned, you know, partner experience, customer experience. Are you getting into that yet? You know, looking at how well your partners are doing and in, in driving customer success at the end of the day? Yeah. And we work very closely with our friends over at uh, customer experience. So a lot of the call centers, a lot of the, when we think tech support, when we think customer experience, that is where a lot of the information comes together. So that's where our partners call in. That's where the end customers call in. And we sit together with the, the customer experience team uh, almost weekly to look at what is the late, what are the latest findings? Because if something doesn't work or if you can do something better, that is you who wear bubbles up first, right? When we think about customer CSET, some of the statistics that we look at, what bubbles up, and then we categorize them, we prioritize them and say, what are the three things we want to focus on this week that will have the biggest impact on our partner and customer experience? And then, you know, we reiterate that, that same process every week. And if as long as there's progress in improving the customer experience, we're happy. And hopefully the partners as well. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, you mentioned tiering. 
Have you guys considered or are you looking at potentially eliminating tiers in the future? That's something we talk a lot about on this program and every channel conference I go to. There are people who are replacing tiers with different structures, point-based programs, and seeing other areas that are more important than the transactional volume. Has that hit you yet or is that something on your radar? Yeah. The, now, the tiering has quite a bit of, quite a bit of uh, dimensions, right? So the, the point system that you made. We have then certain categories and certain tiers where we start looking at not only the financial, the financial KPIs, if we're honest, that's the easy part, right? You, you come out, you know, what's the financial strategy? What are the targets for next year? And then it takes its course and gets cascaded, right? In, in a healthy dialogue with the partners. That's what you have the quarterly business reviews and the annual business discussions with. But we also, we look way beyond just the transactional or the financial dynamics. And in some of our businesses, we do have a point system, right? That then determines you can use some of those points to offset. It's almost like a when I think about some of the airline programs where you have your standard KPIs, but then you have those special, if you use my credit card, you get some MQM over here, right? So we use similar, I almost want to call it gamification-like aspects that can help you in your tiering. So it's not a on and off or black or white tiering model that we have. There are certain dimensions because the partner world is a complex world, right? And it's uh, in order to determine the right amount of support for the right partner, we got to look beyond just the financial dimension, even though I don't want to underplay it. It's one of the most important ones in the program. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. The, the airlines did this. Delta did it to us, right? Being in Atlanta, we're big Delta flyers and they added those other components. It's not just based on miles flown anymore. Yeah. And when you log into some of those accounts, right, you see a very simple scorecard. I can tell, whoa, hmm, maybe I need a mileage run to Seattle in, in December to make a diamond this year, whatever the, the category might be. But then the additional aspects, right? You have certain offers that then pop up. If you do leverage some of the credit cards over here, it brings together a slightly more complex, but better suited experience for the partner. So we, we follow a very similar methodology. Yeah. I'm curious, with 30,000 partners, I mean, that's a, a big order of magnitude more than what we have. How do you manage that many partners, kind of? And you had mentioned this line to me before about doing more with less. What does that mean to you and, and getting, a, I guess, efficiencies in, in your approach? Yeah. And while it sounds like a big number, and it certainly is, but when I think about the complexity that is the building space, and when I think about different dimensions in different continents, right? So when we think about indoor air quality during the pandemic, schools, let's say in Germany versus schools in the United States, indoor air quality means something very, very, well, it means the same, but how we get to that outcome is very different, right? So in, in the US, we use mostly forced air in, in order to heat or cool certain elements. Well, Germany uses a slightly different model, right? So if they wanted to have fresh air, what they called opening windows, right? So it requires certain approaches in different countries. And that's where our partner network is so critical because a partner network in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, while they deliver the same outcome, it's very much based on the building reality in that region. Now, if you go to the UK, if you go to India, if you go to Pacific, if you go to Mexico or the United States, it's a very different environment. And in order for us to make sure we have the best skilled and most knowledgeable partner network to deliver the highest outcome to the right customer in the right geographic at the right time. It requires a big family to come together and we couldn't do it without that amount, with, with that partner network. Yeah. What really helps you 
manage that scale of partners? Is it you mentioned e-commerce, a PRM? You're you're really going digital. It sounds like to to really get more efficiencies and have the scale of partners and, and treat them well. Yeah, the first thing that we do and and that we always strive towards is listening to our partners. Right, uh, while automation is something that is in our DNA, something that we always look at how can we make life easier, not only with our products to the end user, but also how can we make life easier for our employees, for our partners. That's something that drive of innovation for efficiency to improve whatever your reality might be is in our DNA. But it all starts with one simple thing, listening. And unfortunately, when you think about society right now, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but there's a big difference between letting somebody finish talking and listen. And unfortunately, you see a lot of the first one in, in, in certain dim uh, dimensions at Honeywell. We listen, we take in the information, and then we see how can we apply that in an automated way to deliver the outcome that was articulated to us. In your listening, any other big surprises or challenges that you're facing right now? You're, you're hearing partners say, hey, I really wish you guys could do this, and you're still still working on figuring out how to do it. I would say it's probably we would like to move faster than we currently that we currently can. And maybe a, a good way to articulate it is we don't want to sacrifice quality for speed, right? While there are certain things that we are super excited about, and I can't wait for the partners to see this and, and roll it out. And you know, we 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 do make sure we don't sacrifice our quality gates. You know, sitting together with our distributor advisory council, technology advisory council, and doing our internal QA before we roll something up. We won't catch it all, right? It's with everything that in in these days when it comes to software. But we want to make sure that every release we roll out is a significant improvement of, to what it used to be. So I don't know if it counts as a challenge, but holding back on our own impatience not to move too fast in certain areas. I feel that one a lot, Ollie. I've got really big thoughts and dreams in my head of what I want to do. And then I have to scale it back to what can we realistically do. And a lot of times IT is a bottleneck because there are system changes and you can only move so fast because one thing impacts five other things, right? You mentioned that. Yeah. And I feel very lucky to have the, a great partnership with IT, an IT organization with a very strong business mindset, a lot of e-commerce background and helping us to look at it from a, through a lens of, you know, pragmatic. How can, what can we roll out now? That makes sense. And always making sure that what we roll out is at the highest level of quality. So I feel thankful that we have great partnership uh, with IT and then helping us to prioritize that comes to the distributor advisory councils. Yeah. Interesting. How many distributors do you have? It depends on how we, because sometimes the lines get blurry, depending on, you know, when you think partner, distributor, OEM, system integrator. But I would say uh, the, the vast majority of our environment, I would, cut this, I would probably define them as distributors. And then we have a subset of that that I would refer to as system integrator. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, you have a different model. So your distributors are probably then selling to local stores or web service shops that are implementing these different systems. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a different model there. So what about partner enablement? You, I think you have a, a Honeywell University, a partner university. Is that correct? Yes. That's another element. When we think about the amount of innovation that comes out of building technologies through new product introductions or new product enhancements, and they're only as good as the benefit you can articulate to the end customer and the way you can enable 
your organization to effectively sell. And that could be a direct seller. It could be a partner, a distributor, right? And uh, we spend a lot of time to make sure that we provide the right level of support. And for me, that's always twofold. And while we enable our partners with the right assets, and we always get feedback on what can we do better, what could we change? Now, it's an ongoing dialogue. Um, this brochure didn't work. What about this um, data sheet? So it's an always ongoing discussion of the enablement assets. The second piece is through air cover marketing campaigns. How can we generate demand in the end market that then pulls the business for the distributors, right? So enabling the distributor while we are generating with air cover campaigns, the demand in the market, you know, some in innovation that is happening in a fire space. If we think about some of the electrical products, building management solutions. So the list is sheer endless, but it goes both ways, enablement and generating the demand for a partner network. What kind of enablement are you finding most effective if you think about, you know, you could do live in-person training, live online training, you just do canned, you know, video training. Are you finding any one model is, is more effective than the other? Um, it depends on the type of training. We use kind of like a hybrid mode. So there are certain sales trainings when we think about sales methodologies that you maybe want to roll out, we find that doing those in person, bring together a small group of sellers, going and playing through scenarios, maybe even videotaping certain scenarios and then analyzing that those in person work the best. And if you have other elements where you, for example, introduce a new product and there's an overview, you know, we're going from version 1.1 to 1.2, the key differentiators. Here are the features that deliver a certain outcome. This is why the end customer maybe should care. Is there an element of cost savings or productivity? Or is there something that uh, maybe increase the amount or decrease the amount of time we get people out of the building? Whatever the aspect might be, those could be also done through webinars. And then we have a pretty big library um, around our um, product information management system with all the assets. It, that is where you have your brochures, your case studies. Um, where you have your uh, data sheets and any kind of aspect. It could also include some of maybe the battle cards, proposal calculations. So there's a certain inventory uh, that we use uh, that people have access to. But I would say those three elements, uh, sales methodology in person, a lot of the product launches, we leverage webinars plus in-person meetings that are happening, maybe at events where we tag onto those and have follow-up conversations. And then a big library of enablement assets. Yeah. Are you finding customers and partners are now willing to come back face to face? Because we're, we're seeing still hesitancy in, in certain markets. It's, I would say the toughest year was 2020. I think for most of us, uh, I was sitting in my basement office and, and thought, ah, this will be, hopefully this will be over in a couple of months. And, and after a year in that basement, I, I was ready to see the sunlight again. And, um, now, we saw a sense to back to normal, if I may use that term, starting in 2021, right? We, and we, we approached it very much data-driven and very much within the guidelines in the United States, um, maybe the CDC. We looked at some of the um, agencies in Europe and said, which countries are more safer to have in person versus other? What is the index? And we reviewed it weekly and gave our sellers guidance on, you know what, if you're in this uh, geographic area, um, it's, it's a no, um, we, we need to continue to stay virtual. Um, but if I think about this year, 
Um, I just came back from Germany from the Security Essen, which is is one of the biggest and most important uh, trade shows in Europe when it comes to some of the security and fire. And it goes way beyond that aspect. And it was so good to see so many people in, in, in person again and just the excitement. But again, we did it in a very safe way. You know, we have our safety protocols that we follow. But I think we had a point, certainly at Honeywell, um, we believe in, in, in the face time, in, in the face value we have with our customers. If you need us, we are there. We will never hide behind a computer in order to make sure we provide the, the best customer experience. But again, we want to do it in a prioritized and very safe way for, for everybody. But this year, 2022, significant increase in face-to-face over 2020. But the trend started in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Every event I go to, I was just at a partner event last week and it, you're still so reminded how much you value the face-to-face, you know, having having really lost it for a year or a year and a half. It's uh, There's no replacing it. And even if you, when you walk now through, I think there's a, a, a greater sense of awareness if, you know, when, when you think about how close you are to other folks, right, even if you now enter a subway in, in, in Munich and, and you notice people are starting to come into your space, I think there's just a greater sense of awareness now. And you know, if we all act smart, you know, a, a mask goes a long way, you know, and I never want to make it about politics, right? But if I think about simple elements where this might be something that is with us for a long time, I, I don't know, and I'm certainly not a a medical expert, but, you know, if you follow basic guidance and rules, I think we can make this work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious, Ollie, kind of on the personal side, your your journey from, uh, did you grow up in Germany? No, it's, I, you know, interesting, interesting journey. So my, my, my parents are both from, from Europe, from, from different countries, but, um, uh, my dad worked for a big international company and his career of 42 years brought him to a, a, a ton of different places, right? So Uruguay, Brazil, Argentina. So um, they just happened to be in Brazil and that's where I was born. And then my sister was born in Argentina. Then we moved to Germany. That's where I got my accent from. You know, once you have a German accent, you have a German accent. And went there from... <laughs> so you're a Brazilian with a German accent. I love it. You can't make this up, right? And then uh, second grade through college, I was in Germany. And then about 20 years ago, I came to the United States first in the Bay Area. I always spent time the last 20 years always in marketing and communication. But even in Germany, I did spend about four years as a service technician. So I was a service technician for first CNC machines, then elevators, conveyor belts. So I, I, I drove around with my little service uh, van which honestly back then wasn't filled with spare parts. It was filled with folders and, you know, all the manuals because you showed up to a service call and it's like, whoop, the service order was wrong. It's not that CNC machine. So it was a different G code. So you need a different folder. And, um, but then I decided I really want to get into marketing, digital marketing back then. It wasn't even called digital marketing. I think we called it e-marketing maybe. And, I figured if I want to get into that space, I, I got to go where the magic happens. And what's the Silicon Valley? And when did that pull you into the partner space? So I started with e-marketing, then it became digital marketing. I think then online communications and it became, you know, as my career progressed, it became all of marketing. And then as I went through the, the career stages, it started to include the partner network as, as one of the um, channel marketing. So if I look at my current uh, marketing team, we are mixed between marketing individuals, channel marketing, and then marketing specialists. And by specialists, I mean 
specific skill set. It might be marketing, automation, digital events, uh, virtual engagement, creative. And between those three groups is how we run marketing. And it's, I think that started in my career, that started about maybe seven, eight years ago, that the partner aspect played a significant role of the experience. Right. Very nice. Very nice. And what do you like to do outside of work? Do you have a particular area of, of hobby or adventure that you like to pursue? Uh, yeah. So when we lived in the Bay Area, my wife and I, we loved to snowboard and surf. Um, that came to a full stop when we moved to Georgia. Um, I could have figured that one out by simply looking at a map, which I didn't do. But, you know, um, we still try to have a surfing vacation at least once a year um, and snowboarding also once a year. Now the kids, I have two, da two daughters, they're old enough. And we gave them a choice, skiing or snowboarding. So as a family, we try to snowboard uh, at least once a year. But when I think about outside of work, for me, the most important aspect is any minute I get, I spend with my family, wife and kids. That's that. And in any kind of whatever the, the activity might be, as long as I'm with my family, I'm happy. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, Ali, great conversation. Any parting words for any of our listeners who might have to embark on on a kind of journey like you went through of really consolidating, you know, many, many programs down into a, a really concise set. Yeah, I would say the the key, maybe the, the key thing I could say is transformation is a journey. And um, even though you may have it all mapped out in your head and you know what the end state may be, make sure you bring everybody along. Everybody sees the benefit, the outcome. Don't under communicate and have the patience to manage the amount of change. Uh, because the reward is great, but change is never easy. And I think what really helped us or what when I look back now on the journey, it's the, the people that I have the pleasure of working with, the team that makes the change happen, and the engagement we have with our customers, and the impact we then see is really what motivates us. So stay patient, stay positive, stay motivated, and magic will happen. <laughs> All right. Great, Ollie. Thanks for sharing your magic. Wish you best of luck as you continue this journey. Thanks, Rob, for having me. Really enjoyed our conversation and speak to you soon. All right. Great. Thanks a lot. See ya. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure. All right, guys, that is an incredible story. Ollie didn't have a handful of programs to consolidate. He had 241 partner programs supporting over 30,000 partners. Consolidating those down started by taking the partner's perspective and determining how they define success. That was key. Thank you for listening today. For today's show notes, just go to channeljourneys.com slash CJ108. You can subscribe while you're there. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. If you're up for a challenge this year, check out the Murph Challenge. I'll have a link in the show notes. Keeping up our physical fitness can help your stamina in the partner channel. It is a marathon, not a sprint after all. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, have an awesome channel journey.